Good morning. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and raise your hand because we're going to be looking at quite a few different passages of Scripture to start this message. So just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. If not, take your Bibles with me. And we're going to begin Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. I'm just going to call these out, and when I get there, I'm going to read them. So we'll see who's faster, all right? Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now listen to this, guys. And that... Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Wonder how long? Continually. Only evil continually. Now go to chapter 8, same same book, chapter 8, verse 21. So that was pre-flood. Post-flood. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. Verse 9. <clears throat> I always thought it'd be a fun thing if you could get somebody really fast with their phone and somebody really fast with their leather Bible and then have a, have a race, see how that goes. <clears throat> 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, 5. We're going to make a CD, an audio CD someday with the sound of those pages flipping. Lovely. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3. We're doing a little systematic theology here for starters where we ask the question, what does my Bible tell me about the character of man? What does my Bible tell me about the character of man? Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not 
even one. Yeah, but I know a guy. No, you don't. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. And they wrap it all up with a bow. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we, Paul throws himself in there, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Father, as we look carefully and think carefully about what your word says about our character apart from Jesus Christ, it is... Pretty bleak. I ask, Lord God, that as we think on the truths in these passages strung together and our text in Genesis this morning, dear God, you would have your way with us. You would instruct us this morning from your holy word. I pray, Father, that I would not be in the way, that I would not be a distraction, but that your word would go to your people. and I could just be an instrument to do that. And so, uh, Lord, great, great dependency upon you to accomplish the task in front of me. I recognize that, and I plead with you for grace now. In Jesus' name, amen. A weak view, a weak view, oh, Genesis 34 is where we're going to be going. A weak view of the degree of the fall of man affects everything theologically. If you have a weak perspective on just what happened to man's nature at the fall, it will dramatically, drastically affect your understanding of your whole Bible. We have a culture screaming in our ear that man is the measure of all things, we have a lot of Christians who want to cut a lot of people a lot of slack and say, well, that, those passages that Dan read, those are about you know, the bad people, unlike us good people. There's good people in the world, and this is just about the bad people. To which I would just simply ask, did you read the text with me? No one, no one, all, all. It is encompassing of human nature. And the theology that comes out of a weak understanding of the nature of sin and the fall of man is so detrimental, and horrific heresies have flowed out of it throughout the history of the church. We must let the Bible tell us that which is about us. Because the truth is, we flatter ourselves. I flatter myself 
really fast and say, it's not that bad, I didn't murder anybody, I'm not as bad as fill-in-the-blank, Hitler, or whoever, I'm not as bad as them, and so therefore I must be okay. Because God grades on a curve with everybody, right? And then I come to Scripture, and the Scripture says, no, Dan, actually, you are wicked, evil, dead in sins and trespasses, lost, blind, all the different passages that are in reference to the sinfulness of man and his natural state. But then God does something else. Not only does he give you like a really clear declarative statement about your, about your nature, about the nature of mankind. Yes, there are many passages. We just read a bunch of them, and I could just multiply that just the rest of our morning. You know that if you know your Bible. Then on top of that, the Lord gives us piles and piles and piles of narrative that shows the exact same truth. As you walk through the narratives of Scripture, you come away going, man, man is really bad. And women too, (laughs) they're bad too. Children are bad. Wow, it seems like almost everybody is bad. And so it's, it's interesting to me how God not only gives the clear, distinct statements, this is what your nature is like, but then he goes, but now I'm going to give you a, a ton of narrative that reveals this. If you're visiting this morning, one question that may come across your mind is, why on earth is this guy preaching Genesis chapter 34? Because it's a hard text. It's really hard. Nowhere in this chapter is God mentioned. Um, If you're asking that, the reason I'm in 34 is because we finished 33 last week. All right? So that's, that's why this is God's word, inspired, inerrant, powerful. So let's go. Verse 1 of Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Remember, this only daughter of, of Jacob and Leah, uh, Dinah. They, she lives with a whole pile of brothers. Uh, and what we're told is as they are there in Shechem, remember what we saw last week, Jacob has been told to go back to his land, go back to people, go his people. He's holding back. He's holding back. He went to Succoth. He was there for years, now he's here at Shechem. He's still holding back from obedience. It's a kind of a half-hearted obedience. Well, while he's holding back, we see something dramatic happen, something painful happen, something traumatic happen. So this young lady goes out into the land. She wants to go see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Yeah. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So what we see here is we see rape and we see marital pursuit within the first four verses of this predicament going on here. Leah's daughter Dinah went out among the women of the land, and Shechem is the name of the city as well as the name of the prince of the city. 
Hamor's son. The language here is very strong, and I'm not going to go in, in detail about it, but just you can re- see it in the language, at least in the ESV, that he seized her, lay with her, humiliated her. Um, there's brutality going on in the language here. That seizing is there is no choice, there's nothing going on. He kidnapped her, so to speak, and has violated Shechem is also madly infatuated with this woman. And Shechem pressed his father to negotiate for Dinah to be his wife forever. So this is, I'm giving you kind of the backdrop for the rest of the text, okay? Because this, this is what everything is going to springboard off of. They're there in Shechem. She goes out. She's kidnapped, violated. The guy's head over heels. Dad. I need to marry this woman, and so I want you to go. It's going to make it clearer in the text as we move through the chapter that she's actually being held there captive to some extent at the palace where they're at because her brothers will be, well, you'll see. And so nowhere in the text does it say, is this right? Should this be done? Nothing of the sort. Simply lust, greed, It's nasty. The sinful heart of man. Beloved, I just hit this over and over this morning, okay? So embrace yourself because you're going to hear it over and over this morning is we must be so careful to not just simply give people a way out in reference to they're not that bad. You know what that does? You make the gospel ineffective as soon as you talk like that. God doesn't grade on a curve. God grades with an absolute perfect standard. You meet it or you go to hell. That's not some preacher saying that. That's why it's silly and people, oh, he's doing hellfire brimstone. No, I'm just saying what the scripture says. You meet his perfect standard or you are judged eternally. I can't meet the perfect standard. I know, I'll get back to that. And so here we are with Shechem, done this horrible thing, violated her, and now he's telling daddy, get her for me. All right, that's where we're sitting. Let's look at some wicked negotiations. Verse five. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. This is very fascinating about this man. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. You can take that two ways, cowardice or strategic. I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest with you. I lean a little bit more towards cowardice only because of the nature and character we've seen of him. But on the same other hand, you could say we've also seen him be a very strategic man. So one of two things. Either Jacob is like, oh, I don't know what to do. We're in his land, and he's powerful, and I don't want to go up against him. So he's being kind of a coward. He is a coward. Or number two, we'll get them when the, when the boys get back. I lean towards the other, but you can buy coffee and convince me otherwise. Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah, and he holds his peace. So he hears what's happened. She's there being held there. And he is going to wait to see what happens, perhaps a conversation with the sons. But the father of Shechem beats him to the punch. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. What a gutsy move. I am just... Okay, verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. 
And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel. Isn't that interesting, the reference in Israel? He just got his name changed, and now they're referring to in Israel, by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. So thinking through the white space, here's the conversation going on. Hamor comes to Jacob. He's talking to him, discussing with him about the the need, the desire for your daughter to be given to my son. The boys come in. Somehow they caught news, whether Jacob sent a messenger to them. It doesn't say, but regardless, they heard. They're immediately coming back, and they are hot, ready to go to battle for their sister. And so, in my mind, I picture Jacob and Hamor chatting, and then that door just kicks open, and they come in ready to go. It's an intense scene um, of what's, what's happening here. The, the emotions are super high for Shechem. The emotions are super high for the brothers. Hamor's trying to be a father who's run by his kid, and Jacob seems to be pretty laxed, too laxed. Verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Now he goes farther. There's an opportunity here, okay? My, my feeling about Hamor is that this is a very opportunistic type of man. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Now, you'll see in just a moment, he's going to convince the men of his town the opposite of that. We get everything that they're bringing. Here, he's talking to them saying, you're going to get everything that we bring. You get our land and our property and so on and so forth. So this guy... He's he's a good salesman, okay? Uh, Where would I leave off? Yes. I know 11, but I can't find it. There it is. Shechem also said to her father and to her brother. So dad spoke up. Shechem cannot keep his mouth shut. He's bursting with desire and want for this woman to be his wife. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, I've heard love is blind, right? Um, But this is ridiculous, what is going on here and what will continue to to go on here. Side note, I just find kind of interesting. Do you remember the description of Leah when Jacob got her? She was weak-eyed, is what the text says. The concept is she was less attractive. Well, Dinah seems to be more attractive than mom, it appears, as Shechem's heart was drawn to her, and he wants to be with her. He wants to marry her. Now he's just absolutely lovesick, and he's talking to the brothers. I don't know about you, but if I had a whole pile of brothers come in ready to pound me, you want to do some fast talking, right? 
Um, you want to convince these guys, no, 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 hold on, wait, wait, wait. And I just wonder to what extent these guys were listening to him, hearing him, because they think pretty fast on their feet uh, in this text. So you have Hamor, the father, just trying to, okay, my boy wants this girl, we'll go negotiate. But you know what? We could also get some land and some property out of this deal. We can get your women. You can have our women. We can intermarry. We can be one big happy family that all started with my son violating your daughter. I mean, what what was going on between the ears of this fella? He's an opportunist, I believe. And Shechem bursts out and says, as on top of all that, I'll give you any price you want. I'll do any kind of dowry you want. I'll do anything. Just let me have her. Beloved, when somebody is that desperate, they are in a scary, scary spot. When they're willing to sell themselves, give whatever they can to get what they want. How do I know that? Let's look at the rest of the text. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. So Moses, the author is giving us a, a uh, kind of an inside scoop of what's behind all of the words they're going to say now. Now, remember, this is where it's very, very tricky, beloved, because we all have that human nature of revenge. We all have that human nature of protection, especially of people we cherish and love. And so the brothers, in that moment, came up with a concept, an idea of how to make this whole group pay, and pay pretty powerfully for what they've done to their their sister. It's hard for me, this text, because there's part of me that goes, I can see that. I could see how angry, oh man, that, that those brothers could be I'm put off by how, how much lack of anger there is in Jacob as dad. And so I, I, can, I can feel and sense that, that kind of, they're going to pay for this. Simultaneously, Scripture, revenge in the Scripture is abundantly clear. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. It's in His hands. And what happens here has absolutely zero to do with any kind of understanding of self-defense. This is planned, strategic, and bloodthirsty. And the scripture tells us that it's deceitful because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Verse 14, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For, what would, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one big happy family. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter our daughter, and we will be gone. 
All right, so how does, how, does, how does that land on the ears of Shechem? The guy just said, I'll give you anything you want. I'll do, I'll do whatever you want. You just tell me, give me the go-ahead, green light, and it's yours as long as I end up with the woman that I am holding captive at my house. She's mine. And the brothers take the sign of the covenant and use it as their strategic plan to do harm to these people. Now, to you and I, we may read that and we see circumcision. It may not strike us to the same extent it would to a Jew at this time reading this. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are these men really taking that sign of the covenant? Are they really coming among the covenant people? By no stretch. It's just Shechem saying, I just want what I want, and I'll do whatever I have to do. And these men take the actual sign of the, of the Abrahamic covenant, and then they say, you need to follow this sign. You need to take this sign in your body, and then we will intermarry and come together, and this will be done. Now remember, what makes that so dramatic is that the Scripture tells us specifically they're not doing this with any sincerity. It's a deceitful act with an evil, wicked motive intermingled with a little bit of a pure motive out of anger because of what happened to their sister. Well, beloved, let's see how desperate Shechem is. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. So dad and son are both delighted. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all the father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, so remember, they got to go back home. (laughs) Hey, uh, we made a deal. Um, uh, And all the men of the city, well, what's the deal? Well, Shechem really likes Dinah, right? Okay, so um, here's what's going to happen. So they go to the gate and they talk with these men. These men are at peace with us. Okay, so first and foremost, they come in peace. They don't, but they said they do. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not, now listen to this, he's sweetening the pot, right? Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor, and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Fascinating. Now, is Hamor lying in what he just told them? No. No, that's the truth. That's what, in his mind, this is what the agreement is. But do you hear how he twisted it a little bit? This guy could sell a lemon to anybody. All of their property, all of their flocks, all of this will be ours. Notice he didn't even mention in this passage, and everything that is ours will be theirs. Doesn't work that way when you're buttering them up. And they went along with it. 
Hamor, Shechem, convinced them, and they all said, okay. Now, beloved, I was reading in a commentary this week, and a commentator made a statement that was like a, just really, really rang true in my mind and in my heart. He said, the Bible does not spare us of the awful truth of mankind. And as that, that just really rang clear in my mind that the Scripture doesn't hold back to tell us who we really are as fallen creatures. The Scripture does not spare us from the evil details regarding sinful man. Because what we're about to read is one of the darkest passages in the book of Genesis. And there's been some dark ones that we've seen, some very evil, sad, horrific things that have taken place, even in this chapter but this next one is simply stunning. 25. On the third day, when they, all the men of the city, were sore, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Reuben the oldest is apparently not involved, and the other brothers apparently are not involved. You could run down a, a, a large list of why is that? Because it is kind of interesting. Why not the other brothers? Where are they? Why weren't they involved? Were they a little bit more sheepish? Were they a little bit less, less angry? Were they, did they not? I don't know the answer to that question. But the text gives specifics. Two brothers particularly go into the camp. Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure. Very interesting language. While it felt secure. And they killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house, and went away. Now, I am never embarrassed to preach the Scriptures. I am not embarrassed of the Word of God. But there are some aspects to it that are just unspeakable, ghastly, when you think about all that just took place in that event. Every single male with a hand-to-hand weapon. This was horrific, the sight that was there. How much revenge and bloodthirsty spirit is in two people to not just take a life, second life, third life, fourth life, fifth life, sixth life, seventh life. That is a powerful aggression in the brothers. But don't worry. Gets worse. After this, verse 28, or 27, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Notice that motive is still there. Not only are we going to kill them, we're taking all their stuff. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city in the field, or and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, all that was in the houses, they 
captured and plundered. They captured and plundered. So not only have they slain everybody, now they're taking their families, they're taking their possessions, everything they can find. This must have just been a scary, scary looking mob. I mean, my imagination can go pretty far thinking of what this, what this looked like. And to continue in it, literally filling up your stuff with their stuff while they lay there, is a pretty drastic, dramatic scene. And what kind of stuff has to be in a man to do that? And to feel justified in doing that. As we'll see at the end of this chapter, they felt very much justified in what they're doing. Well, now look at this, you guys. Verse 18, see a little bit of strife between the boys and dad. And Jacob came, what's your Bible say? Next word, safely in the ESV, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading the wrong verse, down to verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Now, up for interpretation, but I just encourage you to read that text and come away thinking that this is a stand-up kind of guy. After what just happened, think about everything that has happened, beloved, in reference to his daughter, in reference to the the wicked negotiations for his daughter. Because they're basically, what Shechem and Hamor are doing is they're saying, we want to just purchase your daughter, whatever you want. We'll just pay, pay the bill so we get her. We've already done great harm to her. Let us just buy her now. Then we move on and we see the brothers deceitfully. They lie. They plan. They're strategic. They're murderers. They're thieves. And Jacob comes to them and says, what are you doing? I could get hurt. Okay, the response of the sons should, should cause us to stagger a little bit. Verse 31, but they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, this is what's so interesting, is these men, there is no sign of repentance in that text right there. There's no, there's no pressure from Jacob on the boys for what they've done, what they accomplished, what they did. Their vengeful spirit, the revenge, the evil, the bloodthirsty, the plundering, the stealing. None. None of that. It's not even in that passage. I'm not saying it wasn't there. I'm just saying in the text, Jacob doesn't say a word about that. He just says, now everybody's going to be mad at me. And you're going to put me in a very difficult predicament. I could get hurt and my household could get hurt. What are you guys thinking? Their response, Dad, she's your daughter. That's our sister. What are you thinking? Again, you guys, it's hard because my, by nature, I, just, I, I hear what the guys are saying to their father. I'm like, Jacob, of, 
these guys are wrong in what they did, absolutely. But it's out of love for their sister. And the interesting part, that's where the chapter ends. Nowhere in the text is God mentioned in this chapter. Has nothing, I don't want to say he has nothing to do with it, but what I mean is there's nothing in there where God tells him to do this or God told Jacob to hold his peace or nothing of that, nothing told about the Lord anywhere in the chapter. Jacob steps up to his sons with his concern, but it's too little, far too late. Jacob does not speak to the rape, the deception, the abuse of the covenant sign, the murder, the plundering. His main concern is for himself. He says, me, twice in the text. This man seems to be fearful and showing great cowardice and a massive sin of omission. And the boys responded in outrage on behalf of the treatment of their sister. So let's think about everything involved in this chapter, just this chapter alone. Because please remember, beloved, the way this message began this morning. The scripture speaks very clearly, very directly about the character of fallen man. Dead in sins and trespasses, no one seeks after God, all have gone astray. All these different passages that speak to the character and nature of man. And we say, okay, that's what the word says about me. And then we come to narrative portions and we ask the question, what do the narrative portions of scripture reveal about man's character? Rape. Lustful infatuation. Wicked negotiations for the sale of a daughter. Lust. Great greed. Deception. Evil strategy. Genocide. And lack of courage and strong leadership to confront a very serious issue. All in one chapter. Now I ask you, beloved, when we want to just write it off and say, well, man's not that bad, I would just say Genesis 34. Now here's the tricky part, right? I pray none of us ever respond by saying, yeah, but that was those people. Because see, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible speaks about the heart of fallen man. Lumps them together. How many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? So, no mention of God in the entire issue. These events in the life of this family show it to be an absolute train wreck at this moment. Have we seen God's grace in their life? Absolutely. Have we seen obedience from them? Absolutely. Will we see obedience from them? Absolutely. Do we see them mess up consistently? Absolutely. So again, the evil heart of man is so clearly put on display in this text. And here's the quote again. I I love this quote. The Bible does not spare us from the awful truth about man's radical fallenness. Rather, it plainly and honestly shows the incredible need for a Savior for mankind. The only hope we have is found in Jesus Christ. Now, catch this, if you would. I wrote it down, and I can't... My memory's not that great, so... A Christian is one who is saved eternally by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, unto the glory of God alone. 
So a Christian is one who is saved eternally, forever, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the Scripture alone, unto the glory of God alone. So it's all of grace, only by faith, revealed in the text of Scripture, ultimately resulting in God's ultimate glory, final glory. So I ask this, how deep is the grace of God? Because Genesis 34 is one of the darkest, bleakest pictures. And yet as we move forward, we will see Almighty, Sovereign King of the universe still show grace to this family. And there's part of us that wants to flatter ourselves and go, but that's not fair. Let me just warn you, I don't think you want fair. Because fair means you will be judged on that same account. God's perfect standard. And Christian, if we lose if we lose grasp on the truth of salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, if we lose our grasp on that and we start to get really soft in our understanding of some of the sharp edges of the gospel, what we end up is a gospel that's not a gospel and it saves nobody. And so... The reason I don't shy from chapter 34 is because we must see that black backdrop before the pretty colors of the gospel are put on it. So we see that and we go, oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, it is. That's in the heart. That's in the heart of man. And the world wants to put this sugar coating over all that nastiness of human nature and then say we're the measure of all things. What an absolute lie. And so if we take that and we try to make it just this, this sugar-coated thing where well, they're not that bad, you know what we do? We, we, we remove the truth of the gospel. People can't get saved until they recognize their lostness, their sin. And we, beloved Christians, if we don't recognize our own nature and what has taken place by becoming a new creation in Jesus Christ, our gratitude will be so small And so as we search out the scripture, we see nasty stories like this, and God reveals to us with great clarity, Dan, this is your heart apart from grace. I need the Bible to consistently tell me who I was. Because I didn't think I was that bad. Of course you didn't. That's a sin too. You were that bad in desperate need of the sovereign grace of God to kick open the door, make you born again, and make you alive. And so, this is what's so fascinating, is when I preach on a passage of, say, the Abrahamic Covenant or something like that, something I've said continually is I have made the point that this is our history, right? I've said this is our history, this is our salvation history. Chapter 34, beloved, that might be a part of the family tree we don't want to really talk about, but the truth is that is fallen sinful man at his, some of his worst. 
and let us plead with the Lord. He would, he would help us. He'd rescue us from giving ourselves a big pile of slack as if we weren't in need of as much grace as Jacob. Jacob needed a lot of grace, but Dan Mason just needed, you know, half, half what Jacob got. So untrue, so false, so wrong. So I land the plane with this concept. How deep is the love and grace of God that he could know me better than I know me still rescue me? What, what, what is this God like, you guys? What, what is his character like if he could really know me and then say, I'm still giving my son in your stead? still making you mine, and I will pour great, you will become an instrument of mercy. My grace will be made evident in you, Dan Mason, you fallen sinful man, at just completely a loss. I will rescue you, cause you to be born again to a living hope. I'll put my spirit inside of you. I will give you my inspired and errant word. I'll let you be in my church. I will, I will just give, pour my grace. You just hold that cup and I'll keep pouring. It'll spill everywhere. I'll just continually do it over and over and over again. If he's given us his son, why would he withhold anything else from us? So he just keeps dumping it in and dumping it in and dumping it in. And it's passages like this that unfortunately too many people shy from We've got to look at that and go, that's the people that God's pouring this grace on. It's not, it's not that Dan Mason mingled some good things he did with the perfect perfection of Jesus, and then God sees that and he's pleased by that. No, God sees the perfection of Jesus Christ alone. And that includes today. My justification is still banking on Jesus. been a Christian for 30 years, but it's still banking on him. If somebody asked me today, Dan, if you died today and God asked you, why should I let you go into heaven? What's your answer? I've gone to church my whole life. I'm a pastor. I study the Bible. I even tithe. Let me in. No. No, no, no. The answer is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ satisfies the Father completely. So, Lord, let me in. Because I've got the key. And it's your son. Your son is the key. So, beloved, if you this morning are banking on in any way your good works to try to satisfy God, you are up a creek with no paddle. And it is time for you to drop that and just cling to the perfect work of Jesus. Because there's salvation in nobody else's name, and that includes yours. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us all to be very careful to not veer from really difficult passages in the Bible. But Heavenly Father, we would be faithful men and women to ask the hard questions